Welcome to the Jay and Pav podcast experience. Please grab a coffee, set down your marking, and embark on this playful, fun, yet genuine listening experience on education. Listening to Che Cheney and Pav Wanda, also known as Jim Guy and Wonder Woman. Welcome to the staff room, a half hour to engage in some meaningful conversation about some of the topics we think are pertinent and relevant to our day to day teaching experience. The Staff Room Podcast episodes are hosted by Voice Ed Radio Weekly on Tuesday mornings. And on Fridays at 9 a.m. Eastern, we host The Drive, an educational morning radio show filled with great chatter and amazing music. Check out The Staff Room on the School Rubric website, where our origin story and weekly articles are posted, and our podcast can also be heard. We are also on the On Podcast Media Network and are connected to an amazing group of educators who have come together to form the Education Never Dies team. You can find us all on Twitter. Check out our link tree on our Twitter handle, at Staff Podcast, for more information about us. All right, so let's dive right into the episode today. We are on episode 47 of the Staff Room Podcast, and today, Che and myself, we are going to be talking about best practices. What is your go-to teaching style? What things do you like to rely on as a teacher when you are in your classroom, when you are in your comfort zone, when you are you know, with your students in your space and you feel like this is the best teaching situation for your class? What are you striving for in your room? We're talking about best practices and that can range from all sorts of things. So we're going to get into this conversation. We'll try and pick it apart and get more specific, or we might end up in a situation where we are even more vague than where we started, but it's all about the reflection. It's all about the conversation. And that's what we are hoping to get to today. So myself, my name is Pav Wonder Woman Wonder, and I make up half of the hosting team of the Staff Room Podcast, and my co-host is sitting next to me. I usually let him introduce himself. The game, Mrs. Hudson, is on! Oh, I know that one! This is near and dear to my heart, but some of you will know what it is. They might. Yeah, they might. many of you might. It's one of my favorite gifts. Yes, yes, it is. Let alone serious. Not gift, but gift. Well, it's kind of, you know, if I give it to you in a tweet, it's a gift. That's true. But <laughs> <laughs> some people say gif. I don't know which it is. Oh, boy. Do we need to restart this episode? No. Do we start, do we have to actually, into episode 47, start this crazy thing called editing? No, no, no. We don't edit. No. We like the conversation. Somebody can let us know in the comments or somebody can let us know on Twitter or somewhere what they think based on this conversation. Mrs. Hudson is on. Yes. I like it. 
-hmm. So we're talking about best practices or sort of your go-to document or what are the things that you keep coming back to to keep you, keep you fresh, but not because it's a new resource or new pedagogy. It's like, it's like your foundation that you come back to when you're been inundated with all kinds of new lessons and new technologies and you still find solace in this one pedagogy this one document this one resource that just brings you back to where you want to go because it's that valuable it's that important it resonates that deeply with you it's it it, this was an interesting topic because it kind of came up in our conversation and i thought i don't know what you're talking about let's be more specific and the more specific we got in our conversation the less sure i was of what we were talking about and again i'm still I'm still very much, I've got my own ideas of what we're going to discuss with best practices. And I think I understand what you're talking about. And I think I'll relay it back. But, but the thing is that we have to keep in mind is that Che and I teach different or have taught different subjects. So Che has always been, you know, the phys ed and the language arts. And I've always really gravitated towards the math and the science. And for the last couple of years, this is what I've, what I've taught. And so our conversation might be very similar today and we might have some common ground or it might be completely different. We don't know yet because we, we haven't really discussed the topic together, which we, we rarely ever do because we like the authentic conversation. So let's see where it goes today and what we get to. Yeah. Like, yeah. like we don't like to have too much dialogue beforehand. No. Because then we don't know if the dialogue is going to be as rich when we talk about it when these uh, crazy mics are on. Yes, I agree. Exactly. Because, oh, we already talked about this. Because sometimes when you've already talked about it, you lose a little bit of edge. Yeah. I can tell you, we don't edit these, but we've I've edited my interludes. Yeah. Where I've done an interlude and it didn't go quite right. And then I realized after I've done two or three interludes... You think you're going to be better because you've done two and three of them, but you actually become increasingly worse because you lose any train of thought of what you've said in this particular episode. I know it's a little different for you because you write down your interludes. I like to just go mm-hmm. on my interludes. And I found when if I, if I recorded one and I didn't like it, I said, oh, I'll just record it again. It's worse. Yeah. Because I can no longer remember what I said. I can't keep the train of thought. I don't know what's in one recording and another. And I just said, just do the interlude. And live with it. And go with it. It doesn't have to be right. The, the premise of this podcast isn't about being right. Um, I'm not a doctorate. I don't have a doctorate <laughs> yeah. or I haven't written a dissertation. I've only taught for 20 years. So my reflections are just, and I don't mean to, to take a shot at those things. Those are great things. Those are great accomplishments. But I don't I don't have them. Yeah. All, all I have is 20 years of experience and I like to talk on that. And that means that this is a reflective practice. Sometimes I'm right. Sometimes I'm wrong. But assuredly... I'm going to be a better teacher when I've done done the episode than when I started the episode. Yeah, you're right. You know, when you were talking about, um, you know, your first take and, and for your interludes, I, I can't relate with regards to the interlude because I do write, like I write a blog uh, almost and then like a, and a journal entry and then I read it aloud just because when it comes to the interlude, I was so unsure of what I had to say that I didn't want to just go and talk and then, and then misrepresent my, my thoughts and feelings. So, um, I, I did always write it out and read it, but, but in recent weeks I have started doing my Monday Zen, which is always unscripted. And so now I completely understand what you mean because I do, I have, uh, sometimes done two or three takes of it and I always go with the first one. 
just because I understand completely what you mean. When it gets to the second or third, it loses so much of the drive and so much of the adrenaline and so much of the energy that you had when you first recorded. So um, it, it is a very interesting concept. That's a little bit of an aside, but just uh, just to speak a little bit more specifically about, you know, trusting your instincts. And I think instinct, is, it plays a huge part when it comes to teaching and us as teachers, instinct really lets us uh, be the best versions of ourselves. And in the classroom, when it comes to best practice, we really do need to be able to rely on our own instincts and the things that we know, or maybe even we don't know that we do best, but just whatever comes naturally to us to guide our lessons. Uh, our document, certain documents, certain books, certain pedagogies are are ingrained in us. We we believe in them. We've seen them work. We've tried them for years. And so as we do explore new technologies, new pedagogies, new lenses, which are all important and all are valuable, we tend to intertwine them with the pedagogies and the documents that we know really propel us. So that, that instincts, trusting your instincts, trusting your experiences are trusting good experiences, good readings. I've read all kinds of texts or books or pedagogies. And 20 years in, I've got, I know mine. I've got, it's, it's, it sits on my desk all the time. I've had it for years and years and years, but it's not irrelevant. It's pedagogies are still so sound. It still drives me. And so when I get all kinds of new ideas, new pedagogies, new books, uh, new initiatives in staff rooms and staff meetings, I'll, I'll sort of intertwine it with this. And then if it gets almost too cloudy, I'll come back to this. And then I'll build back up again from those texts, those pedagogies, those visions, those missions that you truly believe in. You've had enough experiences to know how they work that you can modify them, e evolve them, but you never discard them. And they're always close to you. And so, Pav, I, I know which one is mine. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm ready to drop that when you're ready to drop yours. Oh, I, do you want me to go first? I, uh, I don't know about that. Like, I mean, usually you go first because that's just sort of the, the pattern we've established. Why don't you go ahead? I, I know what I'm going to talk about, but I'd like you to to speak about what, you, uh, what you're going to discuss first. All right, I'll get down to what works best for me. <laughs> what works best for me, of course... Physical education and language are my two core subjects. Those are subjects I've taught for 20 years, 21 years. And I've had a few other subjects here or there that change. I've taught grade three music. I've taught a little bit grade six. I've, I've taught grade four on like rotary recovery. And I've taught math. So I've had little dabbles here. But my core is English and math. And despite being gym guy... I don't actually have gym credentials. No, you don't. I know this. I have a history honors specialist, so history would be my specialist to teach. But I've never, never actually taught history. <laughs> and the other one would be language. I have an adolescent learner uh, reading specialist. So mm -hmm. I've done uh, the series of courses there. So language is one of my keys, or it's become one of my keys. And we talked about this earlier on the drive this morning, because language personally wasn't a success for me. It be, it's become a real area of concern for me as a teacher later. I've spent more time studying, learning to be a better language teacher than I ever spent studying to be a good gym teacher. I'm very comfortable in the gym. I'm very confident in the gym. I've done years and years and years of coaching at the most recreational level and at the most elite level. So I'm very comfortable adapting that and moving into the gym. Without the technical experience, I have the experience. 
But in language, I didn't have those expertise. I needed the training. I, I knew that I needed more. I needed to better my practice. I needed to be, I inherently, I needed to be better at English myself. And so I took all the courses. I've gone the one, two, three, and the reading adolescent specialty. And the one resource that was given to me in one of those courses was Kylene Beers. Mm-hmm. When Kids Can't Read. It, one of many texts and one of many language texts that we've been passed down, given down pedagogies, but this is the one. This book sits on my desk, although I don't actually have a desk anymore. My floating space, it's still available. It's still got sticky notes in it from 10, 12, 13, 14. This is an old text. And sometimes we think old text, and we think it can't be valuable. But 2002 and Kylene Beers, when kids can't read, is still as valuable, still as important. It really, and it's got all kinds of different areas, but the ones I've always drawn back to is pre, during, and post reading strategies, ideas, way of solidifying what we're doing with reading. And in previous episodes, I've always talked about the read aloud being so important, but the read aloud to me has become so important because Kylene Beers and and her work really showed to me why it is so important, really tapping into the cognitive processes, really understanding how we can make reading of value, how we can expand on reading to then transcend into teaching writing. And her pre, and, and the book is far more than just pre, during, and post, but those are the activities I, I've loved. The, the certain activities, the certain examples she gave in that text have driven my teaching and so when teachers often say what 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 la textbook are you using like what reading stories it's like i just do a read aloud and people are like what do you mean just do a read aloud well the read aloud is just it because i refer back to all the rich learning that can be driven and propelled by the work of Kylene Beers and when kids can't read. And so my read aloud is not just a read aloud. There's a pre, there's a during, there's a post, there's an expansion to talk about vocabulary building, there's an expansion to talk about the value of extent, uh, um, sorry, not, what's the right word? I'm losing it all of a sudden, Pat, you got to save it, I need to tag it, I want to see, it's, oh boy, Jim guy just lost his flow right there. Um, the value of t- explicit Explicit. Oh, oh, sorry. Thanks. Thanks. Great save. You, you, <laughs> you know, I you just got, you I got stared me. at you with that look of I don't know what you're talking. You, you about. got me just in time. You saved me from any <laughs> embarrassment. Perfect. Um, the value of explicit teaching. So that text for me is my go-to, and it's my foundation. And I can evolve, and I can expand, and I can try other things. And then when I sort of pick all these other pieces, I often bring them back. And, and and tie them back into the work of Kylie Beers. I could give you, I've talked a lot. Like, you want to jump in? No, like, no. This feels I'm, like an interlude. So, no, this is great. You can keep going. Talk about what you're talking about. I can make a lot of connections to what you're saying. I mean, the, the, uh, the explicit teaching is important, but what I've picked out the most from what you were saying was the, the pre, during, and post reading exercise. And I think that... Um, we take that value, that pre, during, and post in so many different subject areas. And me being a math and science teacher, especially in math, the pre, during, and post is so important. And so as you were speaking, I was thinking about all the different parallels that I can draw to being a a math teacher and all of the, the ex- sort of the experiential learning that happens in the classroom in regards to math. And 
And I think that when it comes to learning in my classroom, we focus or what I always kind of go back to is that sort of project-based learning, um, the learning through doing. This is this is key, especially in science. And, and I think that because math and science sort of go hand in hand, especially in, in my, in the past couple of years for myself, this is something that I really focus on the pre, during and uh, and post. There's a lot of important stuff that happens before we learn. There's a lot that happens during we learn, uh, during the learning. And then afterwards as well, during the learning, it's become a lot more hands-on than in, in my early years of teaching, um, we do a lot more learning by doing now. And, and this is very key when it comes to science. Of course, a lot of people would agree that, you know, science is best learned when you were doing it with, uh, with, you know, hands-on materials, we're doing experiments. Um, we are, we are touching and feeling, and we're using our senses to learn. But I found that in math, this works very well as well. I mean, I'm, I'm going beyond the thinking of using manipulatives in the classroom and using, you know, all kinds of hands-on learning tools, but going beyond that and even creating our own questions and learning sort of working backwards. And, and I feel like the Socratic method works really well in the classroom as well. Asking a lot of why questions, why does this work the way it works? And always kind of starting with the answer and then working our way backwards. So there, there's a lot of things. There's been a lot of evolution in my teaching. My teaching has never, ever been very static. I feel like I am a much better teacher now than I was when I started. And it's, you know, taking my learning from when I was in teacher's college and sort of my, um, my teaching practice while I was during that time and then sort of building off of that to, you know, encompass all of the learning that I've done alongside all of that. So yes, my teaching has evolved. There are some basics that I always fall back to. Um, but learning through doing is always been a key for me. Project-based learning, the pre during post sort of thing has, is always a go-to for me is always really a best practice. And so those, those are some of the things, and I can't really attribute it to a single, uh, author like, like, you know, Kylene Beers is, is huge, but there's, there's so many different people that I take from. There's so many different authors, so many books that I've taken from so many, even just, articles that I've read or people, other teachers that I've seen. And I piece together little things to put things, put things together. One of the, the instructors that I had for math, my intermediate math, uh, course that I did was, um, Trevor Brown and he works out of York university and he was huge, uh, for, for me. <laughs> oh, I got to cut you off. I got to cut you off. Cause yeah. I, I'm starting to think in my head, were you here? But you, Trevor Brown's wife taught at the same school oh, that, really? that we taught, but before you got there. <laughs> okay. So Trevor Brown used to come into the school that we teach at, that I guess you're no longer teaching at now because you've on your uh, been tran transferred, uh -huh, surplus. Um, but Trevor Brown's wife taught at our school for so many years. So oh, Trevor, really? I've seen Trevor Brown like face to face give these PDs and you're right. He is a wizard with math. And even in the brief moments of, uh, of listening to Trevor Brown, it's already cut, cut yeah. you off. It's just like, yes, like math is, it's just like, 
not having taught math many times, maybe three or four times my full time, the the impact of his PD is yeah. through the roof. It's just it's it's not magic. We don't just give formulas and expect no. kids to figure. Let's figure out why things work. Yes. Why does this formula work? It's not important to know the formula. It's important to know why the formula actually makes sense. I I feel like as a teacher, after taking his course, and he taught the course, and it was a very small course, or so there were only about ten or twelve people in the class. And, uh, and he taught it face to face. And, um, I, I was transformed as a math teacher after taking his course. And so it really, it really helped me to, uh, change the way that I not only learned math, but taught math as well. I learned math in a very different way than the way that I teach it now. And so, you know, a, a lot of my math learning was, uh, you know, quote unquote, uh, old school, right? Like memorizing a lot of formulas and just applying the formulas as much as possible. And, and taking his course was really helpful for me, for me because it helped me to say, you know, you gotta, you gotta ask the why, like, why, why are we using this formula? Where does it come from? How do, how do children learn how to think? And so it was, um, it was for me very transformative and, and one of those things that really guided me as a teacher. So, um, I use his strategies quite often and I still have all of my coursework from that time that I always go back to and I, and I pull things from there and I use what, you know, and it was, it was tough math. I mean, this was intermediate math, which means it was grade seven to 10. And there was very challenging math in that. And I thought to myself, it's great up to grade 10. I can handle that. No problem. But there was some stuff in there that I was like, I don't know how to do this. And so it was, it was, it was really uh, impactful to be able to dive into that. Trevor Brown has been influential in many of the textbooks, although people, yes. we've had this textbook debate before. Your textbooks aren't written by some guy on the internet that doesn't no. have any credentials, right? right. They, they tend to be written by well-versed people that know what they're doing. And he's been uh, instrumental in a lot of the textbooks in Ontario. Even I remember, like, so far back, him teaching so many ways why multiplication worked. Mm-hmm. And why you how you could teach multiplication so many different ways. Once you showed how it actually worked, you can visualize it. You can turn it into more than just thirty seven x seven. Yeah, you could turn it into and it was fantastic. And you know, I'm just a gym guy. Eh? Like I just want my batting average solved, and I want to know how many kids got their serves in. I'm gonna jump in uh, to say something. Jump really. in. This has been your turn. No, it's my turn. Okay, you stopped. <laughs> I wasn't jumping in at all. No, it was. Um, it's very interesting because in recent years, um, I have seen students in my class, and I'm talking grade seven, grade six, grade eight, um, who have come to me and said, "I don't multiply that way. Can I multiply this way?" And this is. Let's go back five, six, seven years. I would never have received that, that comment or that question from any of my students. Uh, Miss Wander, can I multiply a different way than you? Yes, of course. That is music to my ears. Please multiply the way that you feel comfortable multiplying. The only thing that I'm concerned about is whether or not we both reach the same final answer. So yes, it was very impactful to, to learn that there are different ways to multiply and certain students will gravitate towards whatever is comfortable for them. And I know that this is not groundbreaking for all of you teachers out there listening that yes, people learn in different ways, but for a teacher, 
maybe it was about 10, maybe 12 years ago that I did this course. And it was, uh, it was groundbreaking for me at the time that there were different ways to do things. And when I finally saw students coming to me and saying, Miss Wander, can I multiply this way? It was very much like there's a teacher that, that told them that there's another way to multiply out there somewhere, whether it's a parent, whether it's a tutor, whether it's a teacher that they had, but they've learned how to do this a different way than me. And that should be okay. Fab, this is, this is the whole episode. You have a foundation of, of your research and your pedagogy and your beliefs that you draw upon that continue to grow. So the fact that, you know, this is an old revelation is, is exactly, exactly the point. This is something that you still hold to. This is something you always revert back to. It's all about student voice, student choice. And when a student has a way of, of, of attacking the math, solving the math, doing the math, we don't roadblock that. We don't funnel it in a certain yeah. direction. You have a foundation that gives you that, that, that confidence, that expertise to say, there's actually nothing wrong here. It's fantastic. I yeah. mean... I, I took so many notes. Like I, I, I took so many notes. I almost don't even know what to say. You talked about being stoic, and then it reminded me of an audio book we listened to recently on stoicism. Yes, that's right. That's right. And I said I don't know if it really applies, but I immediately thought about it because I've always considered myself stoic in yeah. many ways, despite being a hurricane. That the idea of stoicism and not getting uh, too set off track by the things around you, just being stoic. And a lot of stoicism comes from having confidence, expertise, um, a real certainty in what you stand for. And that comes from having pedagogies, books, resources that you truly believe in, that you have years and years and years of experience using to know that even if it doesn't always work and even if it doesn't always apply, it almost, mo almost, it certainly most of the time does apply and I can evolve it. I can adapt it. Um, yeah, so, I just wanted to, I just wanted to highlight what that book was. No, you didn't. You wanted to cut me off. No, no, I didn't. I you, didn't. Really? No, you, no. I got to highlight the book because it was really, really good. It was um, How to Live a Good Life. And it was edited by Massimo Piglucci, Sky Cleary, and Daniel Kaufman, A Guide to Choosing Your Personal Philosophy. And so if you have an opportunity to read it, I actually added it to my Amazon uh, don't, don't, book list. Don't, don't, don't. Don't admit to people that I read books that are beyond just gym he, guy stuff, eh? No, but he doesn't read them. He listens to them and only because I make him. <laughs> okay, fair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no argument. No argument, yeah. So check that out if you have an opportunity. It talks about stoicism as well as other philosophies that you could dive into for life. So I've been highlighting highlighting Kylie Beers today when kids can't read. And I talked about this text is old. It's 2002. And so often we think of something that's too old, it can't be relevant, but it's, it's totally, it's completely relevant. I still use many of the skills explicitly taught in them, whether it be a gist statement, whether it be really teaching great prediction activities. One I can think of off the top of my head was that you take a few words from the chapter, you put it on the board, or I guess you don't put it on the board anymore, eh? you don't write it with chalk, you put it on a computer screen or something like that, or overhead, or wow, however, or maybe you just send it in a mind message, I don't know, <laughs> but you give the kids these six or seven words, and they use the words to start to piece together the chapter. It's a prediction technique, it's a great way to engage learning, it's a, a skill highlight in the chapter, I just give the one. 
and so it's explicitly taught. I still use that one. It might be from 2002. It still is relevant. And regardless of whether I'm reading the book Holes or whether I'm reading the book Rebound or whether I'm reading the book The Cheat, the impact of that sort of task is monumental. Kids are in. It gives some value to predicting because now kids, the idea becomes is that predicting isn't about being right or wrong. Predicting is about engaging in in-depth predictions, and thus you become more hooked to the story, more engaged to the story, because you're listening a little bit more, whether you know it or not, to how accurate you're going to be. But being accurate is irrelevant, because I can come back three months from now and, and not say, what happened in chapter three? No one's got that. But if I say, hey, do you remember that, 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 that prediction activity and I gave you these words? Oh, yeah, I got it right, or oh, I got it wrong. But you know what? Both groups remember the story mm -hmm. because they remember getting it right or they remember getting it wrong. And that's a great strategy from 2002 that still works, still has value. We don't discard old text or old pedagogies. But then I'll expand because, you know, new things come out. And it's not like discard them because I have something old that's valuable. Last week we talked about sketch notes. Sketch notes are now something I embed in this whole philosophy of pre during or post reading activities that isn't explained by Kindly Beers, but I, I am able to take the idea of sketch noting embedded in my program based on this philosophy that I'm really comfortable with, that I've seen all kinds of cognitive benefits with for my students. So I take something like sketch notes and I turn it into something like it turned it into a pre, a during, a post. And so we don't discard new pedagogies. We don't discard new activities, but I have this foundation of, I love this Kylie Beers text and I can take new things and I can embed it with it. Mm -hmm. And so my foundation, my rock is Kylie Beers when kids can't read and there are many more chapters than those three, but those are the three that I like. My pages are worn out. There's sticky notes all over the place. There's marker all over the place for these pre, during, post activities. And not only do I adapt them to reading activities, but they just expand everywhere. Yeah. And then, like I said, I can take something as new as sketch noting, and I can put it right back into my understanding of teaching, my philosophy of teaching based on really sound text like Kylie Bears, really sound philosophy, really sound pedagogies. I love it. I love it. I love all of this conversation that we're having, and we could probably keep. You gonna going, cut me off? Going. Are you cutting me off? I am. Is this, this a cutoff? This time I am cutting you off. Hold we on. Where are the buttons on this zip board? It. Just zip. Thank you. Okay, so we we I would love to keep talking, but we do need to jump to our three line minutes. It has been twenty seven minutes. I want you. I want you all to know. I didn't actually zip it. I got muted. Pat no. <laughs> reached over no. and pushed the mute button on the screen. I, I actually. I've I been... actually. You know. You know. In music, when you uh, the orc uh, the the comp, uh, no, I'm not conductor. helping you. You lost the word. No, no, no. I'm not even going to come. I don't need you. <laughs> I was the conductor. The conductor kind of takes his hand and goes. Oh, and that's what I did. I just kind of imagine it. I circled around his head and I went. Whoosh. I wish you hadn't found the word. You know, after I couldn't find the word explicit, I wrote it down here on the top of my book so that if I stumbled upon it again this episode, I had it available to and me. You wouldn't look at me like deer in headlights going, you, what was that word? I don't stop. Know. We need to stop. We need to get to the three enlightenment minutes. We can talk about this after. <laughs> All right, Pav, take us into our three enlightened minutes. Today for our three enlightened minutes, we have wonderful Luciana, who is a grade eight teacher in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And she's going to be talking a little bit about childhood trauma and how it affects learning within the classroom. Mental health is a huge issue within the classroom, especially now with distance learning. There's so much anxiety that is happening 
And so Luciana talks a little bit how we can address that in the classroom and, uh, and help students to be able to learn to their optimal best. So here is Luciana with her three enlightened minutes. Hi, my name is Luciana Gravel, and I'm a grade eight teacher here in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And these are my three enlightened minutes. For quite some time now, I've been extremely passionate about and interested in childhood trauma and how it affects learning in ourselves and in our students. I came to this realization when I journeyed into my own childhood traumas via some deep self-inquiry through therapy. I was awakened to how our childhood experiences affect not just the relationships we choose in our lives, but also how we come to understand the world around us, how effective we are at navigating through difficult emotions and situations, and inevitably, how we learn, and as a teacher, how we teach. While our education system touts and promotes the importance of self-care and mental health, I sometimes feel like it misses the mark when it comes to student success in school. And money is always at the root of why certain topics take precedence over others in education. And right now, it's all about e-learning. I can't help but wonder how this will affect our students in the long run. The distance learning period gave me time to reflect and think more deeply about this topic. I couldn't help but notice how the world was living out some of its own traumas, and I instinctively knew that this topic needed some serious attention. I also noticed that some levels of anxiety were being amplified in my, some of my students. And while I understand that I am not a therapist, I do think learning about this topic has broadened my spectrum of compassion to ensure that students continue to feel safe to learn new things and make mistakes in my classroom. Because after all, that's where all the learning happens, in the fails. So how do we address this topic and give it the attention it needs? Well, the works of Peter Levine and Gaber Mate are incredible resources that have helped me immensely. I really believe teachers would benefit from listening to their YouTube channels and reading their research and findings, especially if they're unable to access a therapist. And why would a teacher need to see a therapist? Well, I honestly believe we all have experienced little T's and big T's in our lives. Having an awareness around them, and, and anything for that matter, is always the key to better understanding oneself, others, and of course, our students. I'd like to see more research done in this area, as well as more emphasis on character building education that goes beyond the use of technology. If I had to give it a name, I would call it emotionally responsive teaching. What do you guys think? Now back to you, Che and Pav. All right, Luciana, thank you so much. That is a great three enlightenment. It's trauma is so critical. Maybe um, something that's more in our attention now, but that doesn't mean it didn't exist before. Mm -hmm. um, and so really, as we're in the in our board thinking about going back face to face, we need to be aware of the trauma of coming back to our building, the trauma that was um, induced because of leaving your building and all these different things. So this was really... And, and not to mention if, you know, if students are coming back after somebody in their family has been sick or have lost somebody and, and not just students, but the teachers as well. So this is, there's a lot to consider when it comes to trauma. So I think this was a really... Um, 
a really good time to put these three enlightenments in it. It would have been a good time anytime, mm-hmm. but this time specifically, especially certainly if you're in Ontario, uh, which is where we're from, where we've just been told we're going back face to face, it. it you need to be mindful of this. It becomes something new in your lens of a teacher. You need to be focused on all the time. And I think probably beforehand, we were aware of it, but we probably only reacted to it when we saw it outright. Yeah, right. And now we have to be much more intentional in understanding that it's it's there whether we see it or not. Yeah, that's right. So thank you, Luciana. That was very poignant, very timely. And we very, very much appreciate you providing your insights for our three enlightened minutes this week. So, yeah, we were talking about, just before the Three Enlightenments, we were talking about a number of things, but, uh, you know, we sort of uh, transformed our our topic from best practices to teaching philosophies uh, to, you know, our our sort of go-tos. Our roots. Our roots. And, and there's a number of things that we can discuss with this topic, um, whether it's starting from talking about our best practices and, you know, what do you just go to? What is your, what is your way of teaching? And then it kind of broadens the, the perspective to what is your philosophy? And philosophy is a much bigger word when we were talking about education. It's all encompassing. And so now we're thinking about, you know, a sort of a broader reach when it comes to what is your way of teaching in the classroom? How do you think your students learn best? And this is a very personal personal way of teaching. It's not the same for everybody, uh, but there are many elements that are the same. So Che and I, although we don't have the same teaching philosophy necessarily, there are a lot of elements that are similar. You know, something that came out of it that's similar was our pre, during, and post teaching activities that we like to engage in, whether it's in reading in Che's classroom and even in phys ed, there's a lot of pre, during, and post, um, you know, exercise activities, a lot of, uh, skills, teaching, um, you know, teaching of different sports, um, all kinds of stuff, but also within math and in science. And so, you know, teaching philosophies is something that is, it's a reflective process, but it's, it's very important to think about and to know what is your go-to and not necessarily just because you might be interviewed for this at some point, if somebody was to ask you, Hey, what is your teaching philosophy? But it helps to guide you in the direction where you might want to go, because this is something that is evolving over time. There's a level of comfortableness with Mm -hmm. teaching when you have a resource that you can really rely upon and come back to Mm -hmm. and it's great to teach with just experience but my experiences are based on also rich valuable text and rich valuable pd and learning experiences and pre during and post i'm sure is not solely owned by kylene beers but the point for me as a personal educator is that i have the resources and the pedagogies that i'm really comfortable with that i've used often enough to to know their strengths to maybe see some of their weaknesses and then know how to adapt new pedagogies, new PD, new information into it. So when you think about diving into remote learning, which I guess we don't need to think about anymore, um, tongue in cheek, um, but I, I, the idea of how do I go asynchronous, synchronous learning, uh, how do I build an activity, I would still go back to, well, if I'm doing a, a, a task, I still need a pre, I still need a during, I still want a post, I want something to solidify the learning. So um, that that text for me is my foundation. I can still sprout off and evolve and change differently, but it is valuable to have something that you know you are comfortable as your base. And for me, Kylene Beers and When Kids Can't Read is the 
the greatest base for me as a as an English teacher. And you're right, it evolved, and, and you, you expand. Even when I teach math briefly, I still keep up with the ideas. I need that pre-activity. I need that during activity. I need that post-activity to solidify the learning, to change it up. It adds to differentiation where it's not solely just one task. It becomes part of the mini lesson, the mini unit, in the sense that everything is in these small little chunks, these small little blocks. And I'm sure you can get this information all over the place. But for me as a teacher 20 years in, I still revert back to a resource from my very early on days, Kylene Beers, When Kids Can't Read. So the episode today was it was about that. What are those little foundations? What are those keys that you draw back to? You talked about Trevor Brown and, and mm-hmm. that course and that really eye-opening experience to math, and you keep drawing back to that. And I can always draw back to Kylene Beers. And obviously, she's written more text beyond that. But for me, the comfortable one, the one that I've read page by page by page and gone back over and over and over again is that one. And and I got to agree with you that, you know, there is that foundation. And for myself, Trevor Brown was very impactful in, you know, uh, opening my eyes when it came to teaching math. But but I've been able to apply a lot of the, the things that I've learned from that math course to all kinds of other subject areas. And and the the essence of it was... Not everybody learns the same way as you. So you got to expand the way that you teach because everybody's going to pick up things in a different way. And and ultimately, you got to get back to the why. Why is why does this work? And I use that question all the time in all kinds of teaching circumstances. I use it in science. Why does this work? When we have an experiment that we are conducting, that's the one question that I always ask. Why does it work? Why did that experiment happen the way it happened? Why did you get that end result? And so that that has been a very big guiding question for me when it comes to teaching. And you can apply that to all kinds of subject areas. And so for me, that that going back and asking the questions, sort of that Socratic sort of method and and asking the why all the time, you know, going back and breaking it down piece by piece by piece and working backwards almost. For me, that has been, that has been very impactful because I lead a very oral classroom, you know, like we have a lot of discussions in our classroom and it's where most of our learning comes from. And if I think back to what the times when I learned best as a student, and I'm not saying that this applies to all my students, but there are some students that are going to gravitate towards that discussion. So when I think back, much of the the really deep learning that I had in in any sort of my learning experiences was that oral discussion of things, listening, talking, and engaging with one another. So for me, that that has been a real big basis of the way that I teach, the way that I find that my students learn the best. And, uh, and you know, there are things that I have to add into there. I'm always learning. I'm always trying to do better. But for me, that's always going to be a bit of a foundation for me. Elementary, my dear Dr. Wonder. Oh, I like that. I like the sound of Dr. Wonder. Hmm. You better get back to school then. I should. <laughs> I'm going to have to. This was a, a very reflective episode, just yeah. re- reflecting back on our documents, our pedagogies, our learning experience that are the foundations of what we still do. And a couple of great things, a couple of swag bags, it's just because something is old doesn't mean it isn't relevant anymore. I think it becomes, it's the new sexy. 
Mm-hmm. Another reference, Ooh. another reference <laughs> to just discard anything that's not within the last couple of years. And, and there's some value to that statement. We want stuff that's relevant and current, but it doesn't necessarily mean because something is older that it no longer still applies, no longer still relevant. And so we need to be critical and, and we need to be not so quick to just dismiss something based sheerly on its age. There's more to it than that. And so... As I wrap this one up, I'm thinking, yeah, Kylie Beers, let me track that thing down. Because I, 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 I know when I left the room in remote learning, it's still sitting on my, my floating space. I hope no one took it. <laughs> I'm be, sure nobody. Be irate. No, yeah, I would be too. Um, and Kylie Beers has written a lot of books. Many, and, yeah, many, 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 many books. Many. And, she, and she's, you know, she's always a, a name that pops up uh, often. So... Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of great resources offered by her as well as Tev- Trevor Brown and so many others that have uh, impacted the uh, impacted pedagogy in general. So um, this is a great episode that we had, you know, starting off with best practices, evolving into, uh, you know, what are our best teaching philosophies and talking about pedagogy in general, you know, what, there are different, so many different ways of teaching and so many different things that we can embed in our spaces and, uh, what works for us, what works for our students and, and what are we going to do to make ourselves better going forward? And this is, this is what education is. Uh, it doesn't work this uh, way. Uh, no, uh, uh, orchestra explicit orchestra (laughs) explicit conductor there it is (laughs) all right everyone we thank you for joining the staff room space we thank you for joining the drive space also uh we love our fridays for recording because we do the drive obviously in the morning and then relax for five minutes and then record the latest episode of the staff room podcast that's right so thank you for joining us once again everybody and remember to inspire don't require always be a humble servant and education never, never dies, dies. You've been listening to the Staff Room Podcast with Che and Pav. Written, performed and produced by Che Cheney and Pav Wanda in association with School Rubric, an online magazine and website designed for international and global educators. You can stay connected with Che and Pav by visiting their Twitter and Instagram pages. And also, check out their articles related to each episode on the School Rubric webpage. All links are provided in the episode write-up. The podcast is recorded weekly at their in-class studio and performed in front of a live studio audience. Be sure to join Che and Pav next week, because there's always something to talk about in the staff room.